Hi, I'm Ben Field and welcome to another episode of the Hillsong Film and TV Podcast. In today's episode, I'm talking with 30-year veteran of the Hollywood film and TV landscape, Brian Bird, whose mission as a screenwriter and producer is to create life-affirming, redemptive and uplifting true stories, which recently had him writing and producing titles such as The Case for Christ and Captive, amongst many others. The rules are always changing, and especially nowadays with the digital revolution and the absolute you know, paradigm bust of the internet and the ability for people to actually create their own content and distribute it themselves. That's all new, and it's shaking everything up. My wife's great uncle, he told me, he said, I'm opening a door for you, and nepotism can do that, but I can't do anything more than that. Your talent has to keep the door open. There's nothing I can do if you can't keep the door open with your skills. In this business, you have to take the attitude that if you don't hit a Mike Trout home run, you know, into the seats, every time up, every time you come to the plate. If you don't do that, then you better start looking over your shoulder. That interview in just a few moments. Firstly, I just want to say a quick thank you for taking the time to tune in. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes and our YouTube channel to make sure you get the latest releases as soon as they come out. Plus, you can stay up to date with what the Hillsong Film and TV team are up to via our website, hillsong.com forward slash film TV, or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Hillsong Film TV. All right, now that's out of the way, let's jump straight in. Well, thank you, Brian, for joining me. Happy to be here. You're an accomplished writer and producer. Uh, Did you ever think your life would turn out the way that it has? What did you dream of when you were younger? Well, I, you know, I didn't know what I was supposed to do back when I was in high school. And I had a, um, an English teacher who held me after class and I thought, what did I do? I'm, I'm busted. Right. (laughs) And, um, she said she had an essay that I had written. Uh, I think I was a sophomore and second year in school. And she, you know, had an A plus on it, but she said, that's not the most important thing I want to say to you. Um, She said, she looked me right in the eye and she said, you could do this for a living if you want to. And that was amazing, right? right? Because our parents love us, they're proud of us, usually if we have a good family. (laughs) And not all, not all of us do, but you know, when you do, you know, your parents usually are proud of you, but they're proud of everything you do. I mean, your parents are proud of the first time you, you do a little duty in the, in, <laughs> in the commode. Yeah. Uh, so the bar is pretty low on yeah. what excites them about you. And so I had uh, a, a series of adult champions, starting with that teacher who spoke into me and lit, lit a match under, mm. under me, lit a fire under me. And uh, she dogged me all the way through high school. She, she said she got me on the school newspaper and, and, you know, continued pushing me in my writing. She said, you have to go to journalism school. And so I just kept saying yes to her, right? Because I didn't, you know, I, writing had always, the, the only thing that came easy, everything else was hard, but that was the only thing that came a little easier for me. Right. And I had a somewhat of a, a facility for it. So I just kept going on that advice and followed that advice. and. Mm-hmm. And I had a series of adult champions in my life at a young age who spoke truth into my life mm. and uh, lit matches and fires under me. And so that, that honestly launched the whole thing. I didn't, didn't really know what I was going to do way back then. Right. 
but I got a vision for myself very early. And why film and television? I mean, writing can take on so many different outlets. Right. Well, I was, uh, you know, I was a working journalist. I was a newspaper reporter for a number of years, worked in magazine work. And my wife, um, her great uncle, my wife, Patty, uh, when we were first married, her great uncle was a film and TV producer and writer. And she, she was my best agent. She, 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 we would, he, she would corner him at, you know, family gatherings and say, and say, you know, you really need to write, read my, my husband's writings. Right. And so, you know, whether out of guilt or, you know, pressure, he did. And he said, you know, you're really good. He had started as a journalist also in his right. life and said, you're really, you're really a good writer. Have you ever thought about film and TV? And I said, well, I've always been a consumer, but um, no. And he said, well, you should. And he gave me some books, you know, a couple of books that sort of Bibles, you know, to read mm. for, for film, film writing, screenwriting. Do you remember what those books were called? Yeah, uh, an old, old book called The Art of Dramatic Writing by a, by a Hungarian playwright in right. the 1930s. And every professional writer I know has a dog-eared copy of that book. He, he wrote it for playwrights, right? His name was Lajos Egri, E-G-R-I. And uh, it, I, re, I pull it out and read it at least once a year just to refresh, right? Yeah. Um, so it was that one. And then the other one was uh, script uh, screenwriting by Sid Feld. And that, so those are the two he suggested. Yeah. And then he just gave me a bunch of scripts and said, just self-study. So my film school was that, right? right? Homework. Yeah. <laughs> He was writing for an old show in America called Fantasy Island, which you're way too young to remember, right. <laughs> but uh, it was a big hit on ABC, and he, um, he was writing for it, and so, he, so I wrote a spec episode of that show, just you know, late at night, putting our first baby boy to bed, uh, working for a couple hours late at night. I was still doing my journalism during the day, mm. and um, presented this spec episode to him, just a sample of what I could do. And he said, you know, this is really good. If we get uh, renewed for another season of Fantasy Island, um, I'm gonna try to get you in here to pitch some ideas. And the next year, indeed, he did that. And I was 25 years old. I had my first episode of television on wow. ABC TV. And uh, I, I got the bug at that point and said, I want to do more of this. Yeah. What was that feeling like to see something that you had written on television? It was amazing. I mean, I, I had gotten used to seeing my name in print because I had was writing for newspapers mm -hmm. and you know had bylines all every day. But um, but to see it on a television, you know, surrounded by family and friends, um, you know, on ABC and twenty million people watching the show. Yeah, that was a pretty big thrill yeah. and uh, but but you know the key for me was that was cool that part but what was better was how fun it was because you know in fiction you you play god mm. right you get to play god as a writer you get to create the world your right. world world terraforming your world building mm. and uh, creating all the characters and so forth that it, it it um in journalism teaches you how to write and they and it's I'm so glad for that training, and I still sort of consider myself a journalist even today. Mm. But the uh, but you're in a box, right? It's a fairly limited box that you get put into, um, and you know 
it just opened my eyes to the world when I had a chance to write, you know, this television show. And uh, I, you know, can, I've just never looked back. So it seems, I mean, what a great mountaintop experience from, from there to just continue to soar or did it hit difficult times? Oh, you know, it's gypsy work. You know, anybody that works in media, yeah, under, and especially nowadays, where, where there's so much of it is freelance and, 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 and personal journalism. You know, lots of personal journalism happening mm. uh, and personal media. And, you know, it, it's essentially, we're all just gypsies wandering around looking for food, right? <laughs> right? And when you find some, you camp there for a while. Right. And so there certainly have been very hard times, but also just many more mountaintops along the way yeah. uh, in 30 years of now of, of doing it. And yeah. I'm just honored and blessed. You know, I, I don't know how to do anything else, so I just keep showing up and trying to show myself approved and do the best work I possibly can. Yeah. The um, sometimes the perception of Hollywood can feel almost like a gated community when you first yeah. come in. It's it's primitive. The walls are up. Um, there seems to be a little click system of people that work within it, and outsiders are only welcome if they're bringing that big idea or they have some attachment. What's some of the is that is that true? Would that be a fair assessment, or do you think it's well, different? It, you know, it's always the rules are always changing, and especially nowadays with the digital revolution and the and the absolute you know, paradigm bust of, of the internet and, and the ability for people to actually create their own content and distribute it themselves. Right. That's all new and it's shaking, you know, everything up. So the gated community, the gates are sort of coming down to a certain degree. That doesn't mean there are not people living in mansions in that community who have guarded gates, right? right? And doesn't mean that there's not strong, strong clicks of people that sort of preclude beginners or, or new voices from breaking in. But every day, those sort of barriers are falling. Mm -hmm. When I was coming up, it was very much that way. You know, you, it was who you know. It still is to a certain degree. You know, networking is, an, is, an, is a huge aspect of any media work mm -hmm. that people do. Making friends, you know, finding, building alliances with people. The, um, my, my wife's great uncle, Don Engels was his name, and he's gone to be with the Lord now, but at 95, but he, he worked in, through the golden age of television and, and for, you know, more years than I have. And he, um, he told me, he said, I'm opening a door for you. And nepotism can do that. But I can't do anything more than that. Wow. Your, your talent has to keep the door open. Yeah. There's nothing I can do if you can't keep the door open with your mm -hmm. skills. And I think that's very true. You know, networking is huge. Uh, it, it's, it's just, a, it's probably more important now than ever because the competition is bigger than ever, right? When you open up the gates, the masses come. Right, we have this thing called YouTube where anybody can make content, and honestly, most of it is noise. Most of it is not anything. It's not art. <laughs> right. It's just people getting click. It's clickbait. Yeah. But the rule, though, remains true: that if you're if you're better than the next guy, if you're better than most of the people in that noise, you can break through that noise, right. and. I have to even compete after doing my work for 30 years mm -hmm. as a 
as a film and TV and screenwriter and producer, I have to compete with all the newbie, all the new beginners and the new voices. So the noise level is thick. It's a, it's a vast layer of digital noise, wow. right, that we have to find a way to bust through. The only way to do it is to be better than the rest of them. Right. And that's not an ego thing. That's an excellence thing. That's, mm. that's a challenge to all young people that not, you're not just born with these gifts, right? You might be born with a proclivity to do something good. Now put in 10,000 hours and become an expert. What most people see on the outside is the tip of the iceberg when you're a screenwriter or a producer and it's often the red carpet and the, the yeah. movie being played. Um, but like I said, that is the, that is the tip. What does a, a typical process look like from the inception of an idea through to that point where it is up? Right. You know, it depends on if it's uh, an original idea that you're trying to develop yourself or building yourself or if it's a, an actual gig you know, a job that you get, an assignment that you get. I can, I have, and, and again, everyone's a little different. There are some movies that take 15 years to get made. I have a movie that I wrote early in my career that is still my passion project wow. that um, has yet to be made. It's almost gotten made a few times. And I'm going to be really bitter if that never gets made, <laughs> right? right? But it's, I wrote it 30 years ago, right? right? Some things just take forever. Uh, they just do. There's not a lot of rules for that other than it, the marketplace is constantly shifting and changing. The buying habits, the tastes are constantly yeah. shifting. But I'll, I'll give you an example of a, a, a very fast-track project I, I wrote and uh, helped produce this movie, The Case for Christ, which just came out this, this year, 2017, in April, and is now you know, out digitally and, and, and pretty much anywhere you can find it. You can find it. Um, and literally, from the moment that I started writing that screenplay to the premiere was a year. Now, I've never had anything go that fast. <laughs> Maybe in the TV world, but not, not in the film world. And uh, that's a, just a very rare you know, opportunity, a very rare process. Um, but it was because they had, they knew they wanted to make the movie. They knew, you know, we had pitched the idea to them. We knew they had wanted, wanted to make the movie and they knew, we knew they had a, a window to release it right. that they needed to hit. And so, you know, everything was sort of done on, on, a, on a rush scale. Mm. Um, and I think it came out pretty good. So usually when you rush things, they don't necessarily always work out. Uh, but uh, in this case, it, you know, just all came together. God really sort of undergirded us with a lot of protection. Um, but then I've had other projects that have taken years. Yeah, and you you must have built a certain kind of muscle over time to know how to do it quickly. To well, I was a journalist first. I was right. on. I, I've been working on deadlines my whole right. life, and so I, I I can be pretty fast when I need to be. Um, I, it's not a good idea to write on adrenaline because <laughs> <laughs> you can get addicted to it. Right. <laughs> um, and you don't want to procrastinate everything and then have a deadline looming and do yeah. it in 48 hours. Yeah. But um, yeah, you know, it's just, it's an acquired skill. I mean, I, like I said, this whole 10,000 hour rule uh, is really true. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but the Malcolm, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book called Outliers and he chronicled experts in certain fields, including J.J. Abrams, Bill Gates, the Beatles, and they all had gifts, right? There was some, 
there was some unique genius that God had built into those people. But then they just put in 10,000 hours mm. and then they became ex experts. There's not really any r arriving at expert, you know, tomorrow. It, you, you put in the time and you learn from all those mistakes. You learn from other people's successes. Uh, and uh, there's nothing that accounts for that 10,000 hours other than just barreling through it and mm. getting it done. Yeah. What um, disciplines had you had to pick up across your life to be able to sustain this career? Well, you know, personal disciplines or professional? I yeah, mean, I think both. Because, I mean, yeah. like you said before, the procrastination can be the biggest, you know, thief to achieving those goals. Right. Um, and it's and it's easy to kind of sit down and think, well, I've got a year, or I've got two years to get this job done. Yeah. But you have to keep moving every single day, right? Is there a right. strategy in place to be able to achieve what you need to? Well, you know, it's it's a, this is the only business I know where a writer also has to be a salesman, right? Right. Most of the time, you have salesmen who go sell stuff, and then the manufacturer just fulfills the order. Right. Right. In this case, you have to be your own salesman too. So you have to learn that whole skill. So my days are all different. I, you know, many days our relationship stuff is, you know, phone calls and, and, and working on three or four other things that you're sort of developing before you can even get to the writing work you right. need to do. If you're on deadline, then you just got to shut down everything, right? And, and not, not, you know, get into the time suck of Facebook and, mm. you know, other things. Mm. Um, and you have to sort of put off some of those phone calls. But, you know, um, the, I, just because I was a journalist first, I have always been really attuned to, I just, you, you gotta perform, mm -hmm. you know, because it could be your last time up to the plate. In this business, you have to take the attitude, and it's, it's kind of stressful, uh, but I think it's good for us. Take the attitude that if you don't hit a, uh, a Mike Trout home run, you know, <laughs> into the seats. That's my favorite player. Uh, every time up, every time you come to the plate. If you don't do that, then you better start looking over your shoulder. Wow. And now, you may never always achieve that, but by trying to, right, right by, by focusing like that, uh, it, it's important because it, it's true. There's a lot of one-hit wonders out there, you know, people that might have a flash of success and then they can't get arrested for a long time. And um, so personal discipline for in my life is because I'm a person of faith. I'm a Christian, uh, have been since I was a little kid. I've uh, raised my family as, as a family, in a family of faith. I've been a, a churchgoer and a lay leader in my own churches since I was young. Um, so part of my personal discipline is just, you know, follow my, my faith, uh, walk and, and really focus on that because there are so many great, um, truths in scripture about, you know, just how to not to be a slacker. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's easy to want to relax. Of course you want to relax sometimes, mm -hmm. but hard work in this business, especially for young people, they need to. They need to be able to work everybody else under the table. They need to be able to work better and longer hours than the next guy, because it's how you get your you get an edge. Mm. It, it's not just your talent, but it's also being able to work people under the table. 
It's incredible. What's what's your reaction when somebody and I'm and I'm assuming this probably happens a lot. What's your reaction to somebody when they come up and say, "Brian, I've got this idea for a movie." They come a lot. They do. Yeah. <laughs> I I probably have a dozen projects, screenplays, ideas, treatments uh, pitched at me every week. Uh, they find me somehow yeah. and send them to me. And um, you know the 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 challenge is that. Um, I love the hunger, right? And I love the, the aspirational aspect of that. But not just anybody can do it. And I think the mistake of the digital revolution or the misconception of the digital revolution is that anybody can make a movie. Right. Anybody can write a script. Anybody can draw, you know, make a painting or a sculpture. It's just not true. Some people don't have that gift. That's the only gift I have. I can't do a lot of other things that other people can do. But God makes each one of us in the image of himself, in the image of the author of the universe. That means each of us have one tiny strand of his DNA, right? And he was a writer. He was the creator of all things, right? And the magnificence of this painting that he has made in this universe is, is off the charts. Well, we're made in the image of that creative force. And each of us need to become the Michelangelo of that one thing. But that doesn't mean it's gonna be screenwriting, right? Somebody else is gonna have a gift for something else, architecture or, or, or you know, gardening, whatever it is, uh, you know, making something with their hands. That's still a, a, a tiny strand of the DNA of the author of the universe. This is rocket science, what we do. Not just anybody can do it. And it took me a long time to learn how to do it. So I'm, I, I keep the door open behind me as much as I possibly can because Uncle Don said to me, I'm leaving the door open. You've got to promise to do it for somebody else. And so I have been doing that my whole life. Part of that is that I don't reject people when they reach out to me. There is a very tall reading stack, though, and they do wait a long time to get my thoughts yeah. on things. And, um, but the, the, uh, the importance of that aspiration is good. I think the, the key that I preach to young people who want to do what I do or want to be involved in, in film and TV and media is uh, this. You need to find two other, or, and hopefully three other experts to confirm it. They need to confirm your gift. You can't confirm it yourself. Your Aunt Connie from Albuquerque can't confirm the <laughs> gift. You need somebody who's been to the war, who's yeah. battle-scarred, who's done this work at a high level to confirm that you should do it too. Right. Right. Otherwise, it's a delusion. And so I, I use that rule with a lot of people uh, because, you know, some Folks just feel like, well, God woke me up in the middle of the night, gave me a story to tell. It might be gas. <laughs> it might be heartburn. It might not be God, right? Because yeah, right. I've, I've seen a lot of the product of those nighttime revelations, yeah. and they're not anything. Right. So, so I think the, the best thing is to find those mentors in your life who can speak into you like I've had these adult champions. Mm-hmm. To, to confirm those gifts in you. And if they do, you're good to go. Right. You got to go. In fact, you have to go for it at mm. that point because that's what you're called to. Mm. Your uh, 
internal compass of what is a great story and, and I'm guessing they're the ones that separate the pile on the left from the pile on the right when you're reading through material. What do you look for in a story? What does Brian Bird look for? Well, first of all, um, I want, when I'm reading something from somebody else, and I, but I put the same expectation on myself, I, I want to read something that is about something. It's not just hip or cool or, it needs to be about something. We, and especially for people of faith, we need to be about something. We need to have a meta message. And I'm not talking about pounding people over the head. I'm talking about weaving the universe into our material in such a way that you can't pull it out. It's part of the tapestry and it's, and it's so beautifully woven in. Um, but we need to be about something. Uh, I read so many things that are just, you know, like trying to be a knockoff of, you know, a cheap Christian knockoff of what Hollywood is doing. And that's not anything really. Hmm. You know, what I, honestly, what I tell people is, tell me a true story. Don't just cook something up in your head. Mm -hmm. Tell me a true story. You go find me a story that knocks my socks off and tell that. Now, I personally have a bias toward true stories. Maybe it's the journalist in me. I have written quite a bit of fiction. I have a TV show that's on the air, you know, in producing season five right now, and that, and that is all fiction. But I, I really am deeply moved by redemptive true stories. I think it's the way into people's lives. It's, it's honestly what churches use, testimonies, right? Dramatic testimonies of redemption and, and, and journey, you know, some sort of a hero's journey. And ev so every film I look, look to needs to be about something and it needs to be, have a, hero, a true hero's journey uh, that leads to some sort of transformation. When you take on a project and it moves you and you think, you know, this is beautiful, um, are you thinking at that point in time, what is the business side of this thing? Will it actually get picked up? Or are you thinking, let's just create great stories for great stories' sake? You know, it's it's challenging. You you have to you have to err on the side of story first, but you also have to have a business head, hmm. right, when you're doing it. Because if it's so different, it's so unique, it's so outside the realm of what anybody's uh, expected, that can be a paradigm-busting thing, and it can light up the world. Or it can be rejected because it's too it's too outside the norm. So it, it's a it's never easy. Everyone's a little different. Um, I I believe in erring on the side of a true of a true story first, but it has to be it has to have epic aspects to it. Mm. And what I mean by that is that you have to think, okay, what what is the what is scenic? What is cinematic about this true story that I could see up on a big screen? and it would knock my socks off there, right? right? Big vistas, whatever it is, big dramatic turns. Uh, and most true stories don't have those, mm. right? They might have some beautiful drama and beautiful transformation, but they're too small. So I think you have to find stories that have universal appeal to the audience, also have a real personal journey, right? That's, that's powerful uh, and have big cinematic stuff you can look at. Right. And in many ways, do you look at that as the ducks in the row before then you jump in and say, I'll commit time? Because, you know, like you said, you can lose two years working on something. Right. 
I usually look for the cinematic possibilities early. And if I don't find them, then I don't think it's there. I don't think we have something we can actually do anything with. Mm. Um, it, it's, it's, you just have to be smart about it. Um, you, you know, we're all now just connoisseurs of movies. You know, it, it's, it's the loudest conversation the world is having, sadly, louder than the church is having. Mm. It just is. Uh, movies and, and media, people are consuming, you know, on their little iPads and phones now, even 24 7, 365. So it's the loudest conversation. We need to be part of that conversation. But it also means that their expectations are huge, right? They're seeing uh, epic, grand scale kinds of art happening in front of them. And so to come small, to play small at that, you can do it, but it has to be so riveting, so powerful of a small story that it just rocks their world. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and you still have to throw some big cinema into it some way, somehow. Yeah. You've been a part of so many projects. Is there something still today over the 30 years that you still fear going into something? Is there still an unknown to what you're putting your hand to that you think, you know what, this may not work or? You know, not, not really. I think my filters have been refined to the point where I, I kind of know if there's something there mm. um, fairly early on. Um, and I don't mess around on stuff that I don't think really has an opportunity. Um, I do try to give as much latitude to people as I can, you know, to, to, to discover maybe they just haven't discovered the, the, the real thing there that, that could work. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, you know what? Um, you kind of grow fearless doing this. And, you, and it's the way we're supposed to live as believers anyway, mm. right? We're not supposed to fear the world. We're supposed to just be bold and, 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 and kind of relentless with what we were supposed to do. Mm. And uh, I've had, you know, things that have, you know, knocked me down many times. I'm, you know, kind of like one of those old punch drunk fighters in those old boxing movies, you know, too stupid to stay on the mat. You know, I just kind of keep getting up and getting battered more. It's just the nature of the business. But you build up enough scar tissue where you're fearless. And um, so I'm not afraid of any medium. I'm not afraid of any opportunity. Uh, Obviously, it takes work to figure out how to to do something. but you, you sort of have to build this, this level of confidence that's not about ego and it's not about you know, bragging or anything. It's, I know what my mission is in this world. God told me what I'm supposed to do in this world. I'm just doing it with or without you. And so I'll even say in meetings, you know what? If it's not for you, no problem. God bless. I'm gonna invite you to the premiere though, right? because somebody is gonna do this. Yeah. And, and if, if you show yourself approved, if you try to be the Michelangelo of what you do, and I'm still trying to do that. I'm not there, <laughs> but I'm still, you know, after 30 years, I'm still trying to get there. And, and you have confirmation from mentors and, and, and other important peeps in your life that will say, you, you know, you're onto something here. Mm. Then you just go, mm-hmm. you just be bold and go. That's incredible. Um, I just want to talk about a few practical things. The, the power of team. When you're a writer or you have an idea as a producer and you want to pursue that, have you seen over the years 
the powering team? And when is the right time to bring people into that idea? Well, I started out uh, my career as part of a writing team. My, my pal, John Wyrick, uh, who I still actually write with from time to time. We have a couple of projects we're doing together right now. Um, we worked for probably the first 10 years of our careers uh, as a team. And until the point where we said, you know what? Because when you're a writing team, I don't know if your listeners know this, but you split the paycheck. So they're getting two brains for the price of one, right? right? And so at, one, at some point we said, you know what? It's not worth the split anymore. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or getting sort of taken advantage of because they get two bodies for the price of one. Yeah. Um, uh, but I still believe in teamwork in a huge way. Alliances are a really powerful thing. And it, it actually, it's not possible without them. It just really isn't. Mm-hmm. This is too hard of a business to not have surround yourself with some key people that also need to know what they're doing and also need to have been confirmed by superior folks that Mm -hmm. they do know what they're doing. Um, But alliances are huge. And I think it's actually the only way to get anything done now. Mm -hmm. Whether you're actually literally a writing team or not, I still have a handful of people on everything I do that we go together, right? right? Like a little, like a little army unit, and um, you, you kind of have to do that. Mm. You kind of have to do that. Mm. If you were, if you had the opportunity to talk to your younger self, that that uh, the Brian Bird who was a journalist and stepping into screenwriting and eventually producing, what would you tell him? Looking back at what you know now, um, I wish that I knew now what I knew then, for sure. Um, but I think that probably the, the thing that was the biggest struggle for me was fear back in the day. And, and, and when I was coming up, this sort of glass ceiling was very thick, right? Breaking through that glass ceiling was very hard and going into meetings with important people and trying to sell yourself and sell, selling you know, your work or, or your idea um, was a fearful process for me. As I said, writers are usually people that work in little caves, right, and never come out of the cave, right? And yet in this business, you, are, you, have, to go, you have to go be a performer. You have to go into a, a room and, a, and pitch something and be a real performer mm. and you know, put on a dog and pony show. Those two things are, are, don't mix very right. well, yeah. right? Yeah. Right? We're, you know, writers are usually introverts. Now, I've never been an introvert. I've always been more of an extrovert who can focus if I need to, when I, when I ha- or when I have to. Um, so I enjoy that process, but at the beginning, it's a learned, you know, learning how to pitch in a room. Being in a writing room of a TV show, which I've done for, I think, 15 of those 30 years uh, as a staff member of a, of a writing staff, is horrifying. It can be to, to beginners because it's a shark tank. Everybody is pitching their best stuff and climbing on top of each other to do it. And so you just have to learn to have a thick skin. Uh, so fear and having a thick skin. And it's not, and, and, and I'm not talking about a delusional thick skin where you say, well, I'm better than them and I know what, right. I know what I'm talking about and I know I'm right. Yeah. You need to be able to learn from everybody. Yeah. 
Um, so be fearless, have a thick skin, and learn from everybody. You gotta suck the marrow out of every experience you can because every I'm still learning. Every time out, I learn something new. And um, for young people who can't go to some big fancy film school, um, I have a really good film school for them to suggest. Well, especially screenwriters, but I, this, this applies to directors, producers, whatever. Um, it's the world of great screenplays. The film school of great screenplays. And you can find them now. There's PDF copies floating around everywhere. I taught myself how to be a screenwriter. I didn't go to film school. I taught myself by reading other people's good work and learning from them, right? It, all art is passed down through history in this way. It's called copy the master. Okay, so picture painting class and all the students are sitting at their canvas, right, painting. What's the instructor doing? What's the master doing at the front of the room? He's painting. He's not lecturing. He's not walking around admiring and judging or commenting. He's painting. And they are copying the master, but bringing themselves to the canvas, their own stuff to the canvas, in order to get better than the master, mm -hmm. to eclipse the master. That's what Michelangelo did. He was in the Medici school. He had masters. He brought himself to the clay, the canvas, the sculpt, the marble, whatever, the fresco, in order to get better than the teacher. Mm -hmm. And that's how all art is passed down. It's always been passed down that way. Well, in the world of screenwriting, in the world of directing films, how do you do that? You just watch the best or read the best and then learn from them. Mm -hmm. Mimic them. Go and do likewise. Now, you don't literally copy, you don't literally plagiarize, but you mimic their success, you mimic their technique until it becomes yours, but yours is better mm -hmm. because you have your own DNA yeah. in there, right? So those are the things, the three things that I would say. Be fearless, learn from the masters, copy the masters, and what was the second thing? Uh, thick skin. Thick skin. Yeah. Yeah. Don't don't. Uh, if somebody criticizes you, it's okay. You're. It, it, it's just part of the learning process. Brilliant, Brian. Thank you so much for your time. I'm happy to be here with you. Well, I'm glad you tuned into today's podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and our YouTube channel to make sure you get the latest episode as soon as it's released. And if you have time, we'd love to hear from you. Write to us in the review or comment section. I look forward to being with you again next time on the Hillsong Film and TV podcast. Until then, bye for now.